Welcome back once again, Isolated Crew, to the Burley Fisher Isolation Station. I'm your host, Dan Fuller, and I'm joined today again by <laughs> Sam Fisher. How are you doing, Sam? I'm very well, thanks, Dan. I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, we've, we've put like a blanket ban on like isolation routine chats now. Um, that's been a directive from Podcast HQ, so... From the central committee, from the from very the... top. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure what we have to talk about now. Did it, so... did it come out of a self-criticism session? Twelve it did, hours long. It did. It did. Chess it... meeting. <laughs> <laughs> That's dialectic can... thinking. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what have, what have we been up to? We've you've been really busy, haven't you? Uh, yeah. In a sense, I've been running around. Um, and by that, I don't mean metaphorically. I mean quite literally getting my uh my daily exercise um enjoying the the newly budded trees and the hills of the the sloping meadows of south Sam, london I, I, we, I literally said like two minutes ago that there was a memorandum on this kind of conversation <laughs> sorry am i boring you <laughs> you you are you're boring me a little bit you're boring me a little bit um well i've also yeah. I've also been uh, reading um, <laughs> uh, a new book called Barn Eight uh, by Deb Olin Unferth, which came yeah. out last week, and we did a we, we did a live our first um, live digital launch last night on YouTube. Yeah, Deb, um, it was which was great. I thought. What do you think, Dan? Well, I thought the person who made it all happen behind the scenes, the technical wizard, uh, <laughs> deserves incredible plaudits for making it all come together so quickly. Um, I I would say so too. If only we knew who that. That was it's such only... a silent, modest character. <laughs> <laughs> Shuns the limelight at every opportunity. <laughs> so, but it's a it's a great book, and um, it's 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 the first great uh, chicken heist novel described. But we, we we had a great conversation talking about um political fiction and the role it has in our present moment. Talking about other great eco political fiction writers like Jenny yeah. Offill and Nell Zink, yeah. writers who write about activism, um and just about chickens. Uh, about the fact that did you know that they have a future tense? Yeah, I know that that bit was wild. That bit was mind blowing, right? But who have we got today? Ah, on the podcast in the station. In the station, we have our first international episode. We are joined. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, are... <laughs> we are joined by a poet, translator, and all-round Renaissance fellow, Theo Kiotis. and he's joined by or myself and So, as he guides us a little bit through what's going on in Athens right now, poetry scene there, the literature scene there 
how the Athenian government is kind of slightly OTT with regards to the COVID crisis, the intersection of uh, sickness with crisis, the legacy of authoritarianism. It's it's a really... A potent mix. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's a great interview. I really enjoyed listening. So I'm sure that you all will too. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, we'll pass over to Theo, So and myself. Welcome to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station, Theo Kiotis. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm good, Dan. How are you? I'm very well. I've been luxuriating in the garden, enjoying some of the first uh, sun of the year. So I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a garden. So, uh, yeah, very, very happy today. <laughs> and not having to text the police about leaving your house, which <laughs> no, is uh, indeed. No, apparently indeed. what is happening in, in Athens in Greece, which is uh, where you are, Theo, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, we have to, if we want to go out, we have to send a text to a designated, dedicated number and say, and have, you know, you have a choice out of six and you sort of have to say, you know, I'm going out for a run. I'm going out to take out my dog for a walk. I have to, I'm going wow. out for groceries or whatever. And, you know, if you're not, if you don't do, if you don't do that and you're caught by patrolling cops, then you're being fined. Yay. Wow. So the police state, you know, is out in full force here. And, and how much would that fine be? Uh, 150 euros a pop. So, wow. yeah. Peanuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I'm actually just looking at the cover of uh, Futures Poetry of the Greek Crisis, the anthology that you um, not only edited, but also translated in 2015 for yeah. Penned in the Margins. And on it, Atlas is holding a euro coin, but on it, it says zero euro. Yeah. Mm, and yeah. just thinking about that and the additional impact of what's happening now with coronavirus coming on top of more than a decade of enforced austerity politics in Greece, like that 150 euro fine must seem totally mm. out of reach to many, many mm. people. Is, oh, is yeah. that right? Yeah, it is a lot of money. It is quite a, a substantial amount of money, uh, especially given, you know, how far the salaries have gone down in over the past 10 years. But also the fact that you are implementing a measure that basically says you either go out and conform you know, to our orders or you risk not being able to feed your child. Because, you know, there's also a time limit on how long you're actually allowed to stay out. You know, I can understand the whole need for social distancing, but as we've discussed, there's a, a, there's a difference between distancing and enforced isolation. And how long have these measures been in place? Uh, for like, um, I think, 10 days. Okay. And is, are you seeing or hearing signs of organizing against that not really i mean you know there's been talks i mean you know at least among my friends uh you know how what this means in the long run but not yet i think everyone's so scared of you know the corona virus mm. and what is going on and 
how it will affect people in the long term, the, its effect on the economy, but also, you know, individual health, because, you know, it, I, I'm certain there's a lot of people who've actually talked about th- who talk about this. I mean, there are people who talk about this, but I, I, I'm not seeing any action being taken yet. And plus, you know, I think if you took any action against it at the moment, it would seem as being socially irrespons- irresponsible. Mm-hmm. So there's that as well to take into consideration. So, yeah. There's a poem in Futures that I've been thinking about quite a lot as we watch the response on the one hand, as we're saying, of, of civil society, of our activist networks, our friendship groups, and on the other hand, the failings of those who seem to have been elected to lead yeah. us for some reason. So it's a poem by... Kyriakos Sifilzoglu. Yes. Deflection. And I'm going to read it because it's quite short. Yeah. So this is deflection. The decision makers would deflect if they could. They would deflect even bolts of lightning from the center to the periphery where bullets fall when the dark falls and the roosters crowed a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. And that poem seems to sum up a lot of what is being brought home by the mismanagement, the political mismanagement, almost the political eugenicist approach that we're seeing. Can you tell us a bit maybe about that poem, about how when you received it for the anthology, what what was that like? Well, I mean, you know, I was doing a lot of research. Um, I have to say that I I am um, rejigging the anthology for its Greek version, which, you know, will happen. It was supposed to happen this year. I don't know when, you know, it's going to be probably going to be pushed for next year. So um, the new version of the anthology is going to be like a whole new book. I mean, there's going to be a lot of the same poems, but also new newer stuff a new sequencing of the point of the poems as well uh, we'll talk about it in a bit but um i think you know when i first read that poem i was just sort of because kyakos's work i find really urgent and very socially minded mm. and um he always take i mean I, what i really like about his stuff is not just the actual you know literary quality for want of a better term and I think you know what I'm talking about yeah. but also um, what I'm really interested in is how the work places it, itself within a social context with a social milieu it doesn't you know it does not ing- ignore it um, it you know it is both really good poetry but it's also really good social poetry I mean it actually mm-hmm understands i mean it takes into account what is happening around it and uses it to talk about you know to bring into very sharp relief the the systems that um uh, create specific social strata and the stratification i mean um, a lot of it i've been thinking i was reading the other day um you know um agamben and deleuze and um, i go back to them a lot Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, the, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, uh, what uh, what I find lacking in a lot of um, contemporary, pro- you know, literary production is that is how it is not really an act of resistance. It does not work towards releasing some sort of energy. It's just mm-hmm. like you know, 
some sort of like pretty ornament. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that um, that specific poem, but a lot of the poems in, you know, the majority of the poems in the futures, they work towards that. I mean, that anthology for me, um, the working of that anthology was also me sort of trying to understand not only what is going on in Greek and Greek-related literary production, but also how do you talk about what is going on around you using, you know, literature? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you can't, you address that in the introduction, which has a, a title that will resonate with many people right now, which is an outlet for a time of crisis, what to say and how to say it. Yeah. And at the end of the introduction, in the final paragraph, you, you write, the interesting thing about the poetry written while in the throes of the, the crisis, which mm-hmm. at the time referred to the economic crisis. the crisis a crisis the the rolling intersecting crises is that it is spurred on not so much by a conscious desire to speak about the trauma itself as it is to act as a series of meditations that are unique to itself as it is to act as a series of meditations unique to every situation it arises from so there is a drive in what we might call activist poetry to be incredibly narrowly responsive to speak in a very liberal humanitarian way that singles out the crisis the event often that is happening to someone else somewhere else that provokes feelings of pathos in the privileged western poets Mm -hmm. but the poems that you've chosen are all written from the ongoing crisis that is capitalism that is colonialism Do, do, does that does that still hold true for you, looking at this new crisis? Yeah, I mean, even more so, I think. I mean, because the big thing about crisis and the thing about that we need to actually consider and meditate on is how do crises take away our agency, but also our agency to speak and articulate what they're doing to our capacity to understand what is going on. A lot of the times, I mean, you, I mean... What is going on, for example, now with the, with the virus, the coronavirus thing, is that you have all these experts and they come in and they talk about, you know, the coronavirus. Fine, you know, I'm not a doctor. I want to hear about what they have to say. But I don't think we, we there's enough discourse about what it means in the long run and how it ties into previous crises. Yeah. Yeah, and and that is a big thing because we talk about you know the coronavirus and you know we talk about you know the the amount of people who've died from the virus and it's tragic, but you know there's not been enough talk about how the economic crisis of the past ten years has resulted in a societal breakdown, how mm. it's resulting, how many suicides it, it might it might it might have an impact on 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 those figures as well, or the fact that doctors uh, you know you know medical institutions you know of all sorts have actually had their personnel cut and their budget cut and suddenly Mm -hmm. we find ourselves needing all those people that we previously let go that were previously let go and you just sort of think oh that was not a good thing that was not a good idea i mean the whole thing uh, you know we are working towards balancing the seats but these are just spreadsheets. These are, you know, that accountants and managers actually care for. That does not, you know, translate the same way onto actual human life. I think the the rage that how this is exacerbating inequality can make us feel 
somewhat inarticulate, but at the same time, so I was really struck by the beginning of Emily Critchley's yeah. Megapolis. Yeah. And I should say that Futures enacts its politics by including not only Greek-speaking poets, Greek diaspora poets, but also poets from around the world who have connections to Greece. So it's a project that is about specifically about Greek culture without in any way perpetuating nationalisms or borders no. of any form. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that seems really important. Yeah. We have sort of competitive league tables of like which country is doing best as yeah. if we aren't all connected to each other. Yeah. But at the beginning of Emily Critchley's poem, We Make a Polis, she says, in caps, caps lock on, <laughs> we make a polis or keep your eyes pointed on the state of the world and you'll never have to change how you behave towards the people nearest you. So for people who've been involved in grassroots politics and activism and social justice work, seeing the exacerbation of inequality, seeing the exacerbation of the police state, of eugenicist decision-making is one thing, but such people have some of the tools perhaps to start to try and articulate that, some of the tools to share that work and I was thinking of this also in the context of your own work you know drawing on Deleuze and on other people on the place of illness oh yeah Mm -hmm. and the physical body in contemporary society and contemporary culture and the the moral and economic judgmentalness judgmentality that is attached to that so I was wondering if you could say tell us a little bit about your recent litmus publishing pamphlet limitless Um, an assembly of the sick yeah okay um limitless was uh came out in 2017 um and it's really yeah i know it feels like it was about two weeks ago it's so fresh in my mind yeah so um it's um it was written you know quite feverishly over i think uh, a week, but um, I'm sort of really interested in the intersection of how the body and the social come together, and what does you know disability mean? How chronic illness fits into discourse of the social? Because a lot of the times we just sort of you know um, we are taught not to talk about um, the breakdown in health. I mean, one mm-hmm. of my one of my favorite. Uh, lines, opening lines in literature is, you know, the crack up in the crack up by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Of course, all life is a process of breaking down. When I first read that, I was like, oh my God, you know, yes, this is, this is it. Um, Mm. And, you know, because uh, especially in the West, you know, especially in capitalist West, the body and the body that is absolutely, that is always productive and that is always perfect in its production it never lets you down Mm. uh, has been fetishized and you can see that i mean the wellness industry at the moment is based on that for sure yeah i mean and the fact that you have um the, the i mean all those influencers on instagram i mean it's quite interesting to see how much of their body they're actually showing us and how much you know of the perfected body they're showing us. That, that I find that really interesting and really annoying and really damaging in equal measures. Based on that, we are excluding other people, even if we don't understand how, in other bodies that do not work as they should. Mm-hmm. And we internalize that sort of 
practice because it becomes a practice that, that i mean that's what really gets to me because it becomes a practice and you know you know it's a mathematical certainty that you will fall ill mm-hmm. your body will mm-hmm. break down you, you know when you most need it or when you think you need it you will i mean it's it's i mean it's statistics but mm-hmm. it's um, i find it really interesting how we do not want to discuss that and how mm-hmm. we do not we sort of you know, avert our gaze and think, oh, that will not happen to me. There's the whole, you know, keep calm and carry on thing. Mm. Um, I was mm. reading about it yesterday, and um, I was reading that actually it did, it did not originate in World War II, but actually World War One. at the same mm-hmm. time that, you know, the Spanish flu was raging. Mm. So I thought, this is really interesting. If that slogan originated during the you know this the time of the spanish flu does that mean what that you know you people are dying and but avert your gaze and and the body even when it's collapsing do not actually pay any attention to it and i think that a lot of that sort of uh, uh, way to deal with this also leads to social isolation and mm. not just social distancing mm. but also to i mean to devaluation of caring as an act, mm-hmm. the devaluation of caring as a practice, and the devaluation of caring as a profession. I mean, it's amazing, you know, how carers are not as highly thought of as they should be because they're doing the most difficult job in the world. And at this point in time, you see, you can see that, that all those professions that people were not thinking very highly of have suddenly become the most important professions like cleaners, carers, nurses, mm-hmm. and stuff like that and it just sort of you know it uh, i just get very you know enraged that we repeatedly deny taking a long hard look at what the body does and how it breaks down and what sort of impact that has on society on a larger scale one of the things that struck me and struck me again as i was as rereading limitless is that it does do what you were saying you find frustrated you're frustrated by the absence in so much contemporary literature which is that it does organize it sets out a a scenario and then it organizes towards liberation it organizes towards resistance and there's a turning point at the beginning of the seventh section that i found myself sort of saying over and over again to myself at the moment the the pamphlet as a whole is imagining as the title says an assembly of the sick and this is this is kind of the point of coalescence, and you write in this kind of incredible sentence that resonates with Kafka. It resonates with the history of absurdist literature. There was nothing to restore anymore because everything was continually being rearranged. Yeah. It was mm. it was then that the assembly appeared. Yeah. And the potential of the crisis moment, not as in the crisis as an opportunity, but the urgency. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I mean, that that was a turning point for me as well when I was, you know, writing because because I actually wrote that bit before the seventh section because I tend, you know, but it's also quite interesting because you picked that um, opening gambit, so to speak, from that because it's from the section that is called "Bodies and the Miracles of War, of Welfare," yeah. which is, yeah. you, know, you know, it's a very ironic title, but I'm really interested in that, you know, how what is welfare and what does welfare mean because a lot of the time you know when we talk about welfare there is an ironic undertone there 
you know, we're talking about wellness, but not welfare enough. Because, you know, wellness is about privileged, whereas welfare is not. Welfare is what should, you know, it's, that should be the universal standard. You know, wellness is, you know, you get there because you can afford to get there. You can afford to buy, I don't know, mm-hmm. stuff yeah. from Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. because you can, you, you can, you can feel <laughs> to be part of the Hollywood elite or, I don't know, the, you can be a, a Los Angeles influencer. But welfare is a whole different thing because wellness is all about um, not putting in the work and just buying stuff to make you feel mm-hmm. well. Whereas the welfare yeah. is a whole different process. And it also it's a process that also asks you to look very hard on your own role in be, being part of this welfare um, system, a network. Um, and the assembly is yeah. a lot about, you know, also the assembly of the sick is also about not just organizing assembly, but also trying to figure out, you know, what are the points where the assembly and the members of the assembly actually fail the sick themselves. Mm-hmm. And that is a very important mm-hmm. thing for me. I mean, uh, I did, um, I think it was, last, yes, it was last year, I did this um, collaboration with Dorothy Lehane, who actually runs Litmus. And I wrote this poem. I mean, we did this thing um, that ends... In fact, no body placed in front of a mirror is intact. And I really believe that, Mm. that, you know, the whole sensation of everything being absolutely perfect and intact. What does it mean? And when when you do that, who are you actually doing that for? The whole super narcissistic nature that is our society at the moment, you know, all those social media platforms that do nothing but they are an echo chamber Mm. to, you know, so that we can actually uh, confirm to ourselves that we are right in what we are saying Mm -hmm. for sure okay yeah so yeah yeah that was all massive amounts of food for thought um before i want to uh, ask you some general questions about um literature in greece the relationship of literature and activism in greece um i i kind of want to return to a point that you made about the relationship of corona to previous crises because it, it occurred to me that so we are hearing about this illness constantly it's being bombarded across social media um on news channels etc 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 and i was brought to mind of the difference between what happened in 2008 which was that the rich were by and large insulated from the effects of the financial crisis of 2008, which lasted for far longer in Greece, yeah. as I understand it, than it did in England. Whereas with coronavirus, because it's something that's it's in the air and it's kind of like anyone can catch it and, you know, you hear about Tom Hanks getting it and Prince Charles having it, et cetera, et cetera. One wonders if there's uh, a, a certain elite interest in the current draconian responses that we were speaking about earlier. In my head, um, everyone's talking about you know being tested for the virus, but you know the, the test kits are not enough. So you you get mm-hmm. all these Hollywood stars and you know privileged people getting the test, you yeah. know far yeah. in advance of you know the general public. And you just sort of think, why are you doing that? 
And in the same way, I think, you know, starting to make, to make these huge statements about the coronavirus in, uh, in an artistic context, uh, it's, uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's another form of privilege. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been reading a lot about parallels between the coronavirus and the, and the AIDS crisis in, in, you know, in the mm-hmm. late, in the 80s and early 90s. And mm-hmm. the parallels between the two, and it's really quite interesting that how much trauma they bring up in people who have survived and people who and people who have lost, mm. yeah. you know, loved ones during those years, and especially how um, the inaction of governments and institutions actually contributed to the deaths. You know, there is something to be said in the parallel between the you know the delayed action or complete inaction of governments and institutions regarding who has been protected first and then who has been left behind and who has been left out of that. I mean, you know, here we have refugee camps, yeah? Um, And, you know, people are are saying, we are talking about taking measures uh, against the coronavirus. But what about refugee camps? I mean, I I am Mm. guessing that, you know, there's not enough physical space to keep a two-meter distance between the refugees i mean and you know here it's also illegal if you if there's a gathering of more than 10 people and we're talking about you know people just sort of being cramped in you know 2000 people cramped in a in a camp so it's it i think a lot of it comes back to privilege and you know how privileged you are in dealing with crisis i mean so this actually leads me on to a question I was going to ask slightly later. Um, so I was lucky enough to visit Athens before Christmas. Yeah. Evictions of refugees um, yeah, from yeah. Exarchaea had just yeah. started kicking kicking off there and they were getting removed to these camps in, yeah. the, in the countryside. Now, one of my one of my great big concerns with these measures that are happening across the West is the normalisation of authoritarian institutions authoritarian measures and as you say i think it's far too early to kind of speculate but i i I wanted to ask what your understanding was of the situation for undocumented refugees who are still in athens oh yeah it's still there i i know i mean they were not given any papers i i understand now um that now they're they're Mm -hmm. actually getting access to medical treatment which is just as well I mean, it's so complex. I mean, I do not want to... There's not enough information being uh, being distributed around. Yeah. Also, the emotional response to the refugee crisis is also quite conditioned. You know, there's a, there's a grooming yes. happening. Apologies for the yeah. word, but, you know, I yeah. can't... I mean, I think, that, I think that's the best word right now. Um, there's a grooming towards mm-hmm. the how one responds to the uh, refugee crisis and because you know the news outlets are always sort of providing specific bits of information there's not enough um, information being mm-hmm. given about what is going on i hear yeah. things from people who are involved in uh-huh. various charities but it, it's it's disheartening okay yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, moving on slightly, I think a lot of our listeners are, and a, a lot of our customers in the shop 
are very interested in transnational literature, very interested in voices from around the world who don't get a huge amount of uh, mainstream attention in in the in the British press. So, and I know this is this is quite a big question. I I wanted to ask a little bit about what the literature scene is like in uh, in Greece and in Athens how how does it function is it is it vibrant yeah. at the moment mm-hmm. because i i certainly noticed there were lots and lots of bookshops across the city when i was there like far more than you'd see walking through central london for certain yeah i mean the the, the i mean the the scene is really vibrant you know pre corona there was launches there were launches like every single night it seemed at some point mm-hmm. um um, it's it's a very vibrant uh, community. I mean, you get a lot of clusters yeah. of different literary groups happening, and you know, there's a lot of literary journals that are you know, that appear. I mean, there's a, I mean, the the poetry scene is going through a boom right now. It's been going through through a boom for Wonderful. the past actually five or six years. So mm-hmm. you get a lot of uh, poetry collections and you know new poets and what have you. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite interesting. I mean, from the outside, it looks um, things are happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's loads and loads of stuff happening. Every ca- taste is catered for. There's alternative stuff. There's a lot of mainstream stuff. It's pretty much like anywhere. I mean, I, I think the the main problem is, and again, I'm. Coming back to access, um, you know, not enough money or a strategy for translation. Yeah. So, um, you know, okay, because, yeah. you know, I've been working as a translator in various capacities for, you know, quite a few years. I'm sort of always thinking, you know, how do you get more voices out there? How do you, tra- you know, how mm-hmm. do you talk about it more? How do you actually think about it more? Mm-hmm. And again, also, how do you, recontextualize what Greek literature means because you know Greek literature I mean most people might probably think Homer you know the classics yeah yeah uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> just nothing's happened for like 3,000 yeah, years and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm a lapsed classicist <laughs> so I shouldn't talk really <laughs> but because I've contributed to that myself it's one of those things that you just need to devise a strategy for but i think that it's the same thing with yeah. every minor language what that means in in the long run feeding on from that i wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the history of the literature and, and your thoughts on the historical experience of the greek oh. people <laughs> um yeah just it's just a small question to wrap up with Small question. Dan, <laughs> do you not like no, me at all? No. It's like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How many enemies can we get you to make? In yeah, life? yeah. You haven't even heard yeah, of yeah. this game yet. <laughs> cool. So, yeah. Maybe we should just ask out of all of the history of Greek literature, yeah. which is going to be the first book you use when you run out of toilet paper? <laughs> oh, yeah, there oh, we go. The, oh, there we go. being even crueler. <laughs> we we've all played this game. Yeah. Played the game. Let, let's talk about this offer, <laughs> not here. <laughs> <laughs> so just very very briefly, uh, Mediterranean countries are very interesting to me, especially EU Mediterranean countries. For because if you look at Portugal, yeah. Spain, yeah. and Greece, 
um, all of these countries have had, within living memory, fairly strong authoritarian experiences. Italy too. Italy too. Italy too. Italy too. All of the pigs. <laughs> we, 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 you know, it's that's stuck. You know, you know. Yeah. Of course. You were speaking earlier about poetry as kind of an object of beauty without a social mission. How do I phrase this? I was wondering whether this historical experience has potentially given a specific character to the type of work that's produced, the type of conversations that are being had, and and whether you could, in a reasonably brief way, explain to our listeners how, how, how this is how this is happening yeah okay that's that's a huge question <laughs> and with an equally huge yeah. and rather controversial uh, ways to you know answer it but i mean you know it's being uh, a small country with a storied past complicates mm-hmm. national history and how people understand themselves mm-hmm. and how they conceive themselves i mean uh, what you're asking for is quite mm-hmm. topical because next year we're actually celebrating 200 years of independence from uh, the Turkish uh-huh. state. So we're all sort of, you know, the whole country is gearing up towards that celebration for next year. But it's quite interesting that, yeah. Wow. So it's quite interesting that you're asking that because um, over the past, uh, you know, and we had uh, uh, a military coup in the in the late 60s that has in, uh, until mid-70s. So that has also made quite an impact on the Greek psyche. Uh, and then yeah. it is fair to say that a lot of people, you know, have seen the austerity measures imposed on Greece as another coup. Uh, I think my answer to your question is that um, you can see a lot of interesting writers that try to reconsider um, Greek history as a series, I'm, I'm coming back to trauma, as a series of traumas and how they how they. Con- you know, continually re, uh, refigure and recalibrate how we think about what Greekness means, because that's a, also a big thing for us. You know, what does being Greek mean? Of course, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's the same f- people. You know, with the same thing with you know with the UK. I mean, the whole Brexit thing. It was quite interesting for me. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. I've lived in the UK for a long time. My wife is half English. It's quite interesting for me to also see how. And I always thought, you know. It's a small, you know, Greece is a small country, so that that's what small countries do. But it's not, you know, because every single state sort of tends to go back. What does being part of this country mean, and how how do I fit in this? Mm-hmm. So I think it's quite interesting to see how it's like having a patchwork, you know, um, and trying to figure out what sort of image the patchwork you know, create. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing here. I mean, it's also quite interesting because also how, you know, being a minor language and being in contact with major languages like English and French and German, mm-hmm. how they also impact and how they've seeped through into the fabric of the language. So um, yeah, my answer is that there's no one there's no single answer. I mean, my answer is because I'm waffling again. My answer is more that um, you have to actually negotiate all these very, very different ways of thinking about the self, about also, you know, the tumultuous historical, the recent historical past and, you know, and try and figure out, uh, you know, how to 
negotiate and reconcile the things. It's it's quite interesting. Yes. Yeah, it's a very roundabout way of answering your question. I don't know if I've if I've answered it, but it's um, um, you know, it's it's complicated. Will that do? <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. do. That it's complicated. It's fine. Yeah. So I had one final question I wanted to ask. Um, you you spoke earlier about a lack of a, a strategy for translation and how that was a frustration um, yeah. that you were feeling at the moment. For our listeners whose interest has been piqued, I was wondering if there were any resources at the moment that people could access in English at all to engage with Greek literature and whether there was any, any anything that you particularly that you would recommend for, well, not the layman, but for, for, for interested parties. First of all, Futures Poetry of the Greek Crisis, edited yeah. and translated by Theo Kiotis <laughs> and published by our, our local friends at Pens okay. in the Margins. Number one resource. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, thank you. Thank you. So it's, um, yeah. Books published, you mean, in the UK or around the world? Or, or you know, if so, even if someone's just like looking up on their computer and wants to access poetry or prose fiction or... There's uh, this website called GreekPoetryNow.com, uh, mm-hmm. and it um, hosts, I think, some of the really interesting poetry voices that are happening in, in it's both in Greek and English. Uh, LyricLine.org, which is a German website, also has really interesting uh, uh, selections of, of Greek poets and writers. Uh-huh. Should we give a shout out to a glimpse? Yes, that, that was my, the, the next thing I was going to say. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's a glimpseof.net. A, a glimpseof is a uh, is a publication that both digital and uh, and hard copy that is mm-hmm. being headed by Di, who's a um, a local poet slash translator slash curator, who's doing really interesting stuff on uh, literature and the intersection of literature and art. And uh-huh. um, so you can find it's bilingual. The latest issue was just in English, but if you go online on a glimpse of .net, you you'll, uh-huh. you'll you'll find earlier issues that were both languages. But it's also quite interesting. I mean, I mean, what I always find interesting, and you know, having been an editor myself, is you know, how do you go about curating certain things? And what sort of message do you want to convey? And what sort of and it's it's really very interesting to think about who does the talking here, uh, and you know, letting the the work the works themselves actually do the talking, and especially in these days when everyone's talking, everyone's shouting, everyone is always uh, saying something, not necessarily yeah. of value. So, I think the main thing is trying to figure out how to cut through all this. Can I say crap? The, through all the crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> through all, I was going to be more rude. Um, through all the crap, <laughs> and um, and just sort of um, and try and figure out what makes sense to you. But I, I, I mean, it, it, it's a great opportunity, you know, in, you know, in these times when everything is connected, to sort of actually connect with one another through literature and try and understand what are the common grounds and sort of try and build some mm-hmm. sort of and you know because these are really precarious times try and build some sort mm-hmm. some solidarity and figure out what solidarity means not just like the wishy-washy solidarity but actual political solidarity yeah 
I can't think of a better place to not end, but to wrap up for the moment. Yes. A lot no, to indeed. process, a lot to read, and a lot to enact yeah. there as well. So thank you, Theo, for joining us no. from Athens. Although everywhere is kind of on this digital yeah, plane exactly. now. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. No, and I, I think our readers are going to... Readers? I keep saying readers. Listeners. We, we were once a bookshop. <laughs> We were once a bookshop, yeah. Um, I think our listeners are going to love this because it's so fascinating to hear voices that are outside of our metropolitan London <laughs> bubble. Um, thank Thea, you. Thank you so much for coming on, Theo. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Well, bloody hell, Dan! That was uh, that was amazing, wasn't it? So interesting. <laughs> oh yeah, fascinating. I I I love like because when we're in this little London bubble, it's just super refreshing to hear that people are producing literature and poetry and stuff all around the world, and how it differs from our experience. And um, yeah, I mean, what what a fascinating and intelligent man to have the pleasure to speak to. So thank you very much to Theo for coming on the show. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, next, next up, we've got Lola Olafemi, right? Who's going to be mm-hmm. speaking to So about mm-hmm. feminism interrupted her new book. So mm-hmm. we're really looking forward to that. That'll be the next episode. Uh, in the pipeline, we've got future conferences of the International, uh, mm-hmm. the second and third. Uh, yeah. We're going to India, and we're going to New York, and we're going to Australia. So we're really looking forward to hearing from um, writers who are in isolation around the rest of the world. Yeah, and um, we've also got lined up. Slightly closer to home, uh, somebody from Hellbore magazine, which is a magazine that deals with uh, folk horror and the aesthetics of uh, the British countryside and kind of folk traditions, is going to be generously joining us. So that should be a really cool deep dive for those of you who are into myth and legends and the misted past. So there's lots, lots in the cauldron, essentially. So stay tuned <laughs> for the vapours. Rising yeah. up from the isolation station. And if you did want to listen to and watch the uh, live, uh, inaugural digital live launch, you can do so on YouTube. The video is available uh, last night. So just check the liner notes. And as ever, if you want to order any of the books that have been mentioned today, whether that be Barney or any of the books that Theo has mentioned, just get in touch with us uh, on podcast at I want to say thanks to Dan as well for the brilliant job that he's been doing oh thank you oh you're too kind you're too (laughs) kind (laughs) flowers at his feet (laughs) um i I should also add um to any people who are having trouble accessing the content via their phones i will be uploading either today or tomorrow or whenever i can be asked really um all the previous (laughs) episodes to youtube so you can just have it running on your computer while you're working or painting or whatever um as well so um we're really trying to get the content out there and thank you so much to all the listeners this week we hit 1000 downloads which for a podcast launched two weeks ago is wicked numbers so yeah thanks so much to you guys for giving us your support and so on listening yeah and email us email us Email me, please. I'm getting lonely and I have to <laughs> be locked in a chat with this man. Um, <laughs> Save Dan from me. <laughs> All right, people. Love and blessings. Take care. See you soon. Bye now.
Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team of Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Dan Fuller, Sam Fisher and So Mayer, joined by Theo Kiotis. This show is produced by Dan Fuller with music by Anthony Hurley and made possible by me and me alone. All bow down, all hail.